Hello, and welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hi, Jewel. Hi. Hey, how's it going? Pretty good. Good. We made it through the spookiest month. The spookiest month, yes. Yes. And now we are in the brownest month. And if I could remember how to say November in Irish, I would. Is oh, it Sam? Wait. wait, is it just Samhain? I think it's just Samhain. Oh. oh. Or maybe that's October. <laughs> Tweet us, Maeve, and tell us if it's <laughs> Samhain look or this not. Up. I mean, we could just look it, look it up, yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. One thing we didn't talk about during the scariest month. What's that? Was a big, like, a uh, big time in history that was called the Red Scare. Oh, what? So I'm going to talk to you about it now. Ooh, please do. All right. This episode is all about Senator Joe McCarthy <gasps> and the second Red Scare. So before I can actually tell you about the second Red Scare, you, tell you me about the probably first. need a little background. Yeah, please do. Um, so the first Red Scare was at its height in 1919 and 1920, and it was a widespread fear of Bolshevism and anarchism due to real and imagined events. Over in Russia, we had the end of the Romanovs with the Russian Revolution. Oh, sure, yeah. Check out episode 27, End of the Romanovs. Please do. Um, there were anarchist bombings that took place in both America and Europe, and concerns over the effects of radical political agitation in American society and the alleged spread of communism and anarchism in the American labor movement caused a sort of mass hysteria here after the end of the First World War. In 1919, the Communist Party USA, um, also you know, abbreviated as CPUSA, was mm. established after a split in the Socialist Party of America. And the party was influential in American politics in the first half of the 20th century. It also played a prominent role in the labor movement from the 1920s through the 1940s, becoming known for opposing racism and racial segregation. Great. That's good. Um, its membership increased during the Great Depression, um, sure. but the CPUSA subsequently declined due to events such as the Second Red Scare and the influence <laughs> of McCarthyism, while its support for the Soviet Union increasingly alienated it from the rest of the left in the u.s in the 1960s um you can also check out episode 62 the berlin wall for you know more info on that man you were just covering all bases oh, here just, i got all kinds of things oh. sprinkled in i'm bringing this all together guys oh, this man. is your history this is like this is like fourth level history stuff here yeah and you know what and just i just throw something together week to week like, <laughs> Like there is no pattern to how I do stuff. So you get at least a little bit of organization with the Julia end of things. Hey. Hey, hey. So McCarthyism. Yes. You've heard this term before. Have Absolutely. You not? Okay. McCarthyism is generally known these days as the practice of making accusations of subversion or treason without proper regard for evidence. The term refers to U.S. Senator Joseph McCarthy and has its origins in the period in the U.S. known as the Second Red Scare, lasting from the late 1940s through the 1950s. This time was marked by heightened political repression and an alleged campaign spreading fear of communist influence on American institutions and of espionage by Soviet God. agents. Oh so... Who was this fellow McCarthy? Yeah. All right. Senator Joseph Raymond McCarthy was an American politician who served as a Republican U.S. Senator from the state of Wisconsin from 1947 until his death in 1957. All right. A little background on our fellow Joseph. Um, So he was born on a farm in Wisconsin in 1908, the fifth of seven children. He dropped out of school at age 14 to help his parents with their farm. Joe and we'll call him Joe from now on, Okay. uh, went back to high school at age 20 and graduated in one year. He got off the farm in 1930 and attended Marquette University. 
That's in Milwaukee. Oh, yeah. Working his way through college and receiving a Bachelor of Laws degree from Marquette Law School in 1935. He was admitted to the bar that same year and launched an unsuccessful campaign for district attorney in 1936. Old Joe made a little extra money on the side by gambling, though. Oh, oh well, there you go. In 1939, he ran for circuit judge of Wisconsin's 10th district, defeating the long-serving incumbent to become the youngest circuit judge in the state's history. As judge, Joe apparently sped through the backlog of cases that he'd inherited, and he was censured in 1941 for losing evidence in a case. Censure in the U.S. is a formal and public group condemnation of an individual whose actions run counter to the group's acceptable standards for individual behavior. Hmm. So censure is like a formal like, mm, we like a, disapprove of what you did. So you like don't a, get kicked out. You're not expelled. You're not, you know, no detention. No. It's just like a warning. It's like yeah. a slap on the wrist. It's like, it's like a public. Like, like hey. You're dead and, yeah. And you'll hear a little bit more about censure oh, later boy. too. This guy sounds like a dick. <laughs> Was yep. he a dick? Okay, yep. great. Go. Oh yeah, we don't like. No, we don't I mean like Joe McCarthy. No, I mean his name has been uh, synonymous with just dickdom mm-hmm. since mm-hmm. the Official. beginning. So captain of the dicks. Yeah, here we go. So, like I said, Joe wasn't officially kicked out of office, but. Mm. Maybe now he needed to give his name a boost. So in 1942, he joined the U.S. Marine Corps, despite the fact that being a judicial officer actually exempted him from military service. He was okay. like, oh, well, you know, yeah, I'll I need to do something good. I need some good publicity. He served as an intelligence briefing officer for a dive bomber squadron in the Solomon Islands for 30 months from August 1942 to February 1955. And he held the rank of captain by the time he resigned his commission in April 1945. He volunteered to fly 12 combat missions as a gunner observer, acquiring... Or perhaps giving himself the nickname Tail Gunner Joe. And mm. we will come back to this nickname later. He gave it to himself, let's be honest. No one in the squad that. liked him. They were like, Ugh, God, Ugh. McCarthy is such a pain in the ass. So he was like, call me Tail Gunner they Joe. Know, you know what they called me. Well, yeah. My fellas called me over mm-hmm. there. So McCarthy gets back to the U.S. He decides to run in the 1946 Republican Senate primary. He attacked the incumbent guy, though, Senator Robert LaFollette Jr., for not enlisting during the war. However, LaFollette had actually been 46 when Pearl Harbor was bombed in 1941, putting himself into the too-old-for-service column. Yeah. Uh, McCarthy also claimed that LaFollette made a lot of money from his investments in the war, essentially suggesting that he was guilty of war profiteering. Wow. Well... McCarthy won the Republican primary and defeated the Democratic candidate, getting himself elected to the U.S. Senate and moving down to D.C. for 1947. McCarthy's aides and many in the Washington social circles described him as charming and friendly, and he was a popular guest at cocktail parties. However, he was far less well-liked among fellow senators who found him quick-tempered and prone to both impatience and rage. All right, so it's 1947. Let's set the stage for McCarthy's forthcoming actions. So following the first Red Scare... Um, President Truman, who was a Democrat, signed in 1947 an executive order to screen federal employees for association with organizations deemed totalitarian, fascist, communist, or subversive, or advocating to alter the form of government of the U.S. by unconstitutional means. So this was known as the loyalty order, and it drove some leftists out of federal employment and more importantly, legitimized the notion of communists as subversives to be exposed and expelled from public Uh and private employment. So that was like the precedent set. Yes, basically. In 1949, a high-level State Department official named Alger Hiss was convicted of perjury in a case of espionage and the Soviet Union tested an atomic bomb. And then the Korean War started the next year. So all the tensions were all kinds of raised in the U.S. And we are all very scared of the Soviets. Yeah. So... 
the U.S. did, in fact, have some Soviet counterintelligence in place. Uh, this program called the Venona Project, V-E-N-O-N-A, ran from 1943 to 1980. The purpose of the Venona Project was the decryption of messages transmitted by the intelligence agencies of the Soviet Union. So groups whose like initials are things like the NKVD and the KGB and the GRU. Yeah, and yeah. Just a bunch of, like, we can't yeah. pronounce them. They're all big, long Russian words. Um, the program was founded by a female mathematician and cryptanalyst named Jean Grabiel. Um, she was recognized by the CIA as an American hero following the 1955 declassification of the project. Oh, wow. Uh, for much of its history, knowledge of the Venona was restricted even from the highest levels of government. So senior army officers, along with FBI and CIA, made the decision to restrict knowledge of Venona within the government. Um, so even the army chief of staff, Omar Bradley, who was a five-star general, concerned about the White House's history of leaking sensitive information, decided to deny President Truman direct knowledge of the project. Really? Um, so the president didn't even know about this. Ooh, sure. um, the president received the substance of the material th through only really like FBI and Justice Department reports on counterintelligence and intelligence matters. So mm. they were doing this project. They were trying to analyze these Soviet messages. They found like a, like a weak link in the Soviet system. They were able to get some words. Um, in like Jeez. 19 in the mid 1940s there was one thing where they were able to decrypt like 50% of the messages that came through which was like incredible yeah, that's great. so basically then they were like okay well we'll just tell the president like this one <gasps> like this one here we'll so just tell him about this one like oh we found out we uh, we got some information so you know what? This is a big secret thing. So um, the dearth of reliable information available to the public and even to the president and Congress may have helped to polarize debates of the 1950s over the extent and danger of Soviet espionage in the U.S. And anti-communists suspected many spies remained at large, perhaps including some known to the government. Ooh. All right. McCarthy, he explodes into the spotlight Boom. on February 9th, 1950, when he gave a Lincoln Day speech to the Republican Women's Club of Wheeling, West Virginia. Oh, All right. This is known as the Wheeling speech. So very creative. His yeah. words in the speech are a matter of debate since there was no audio recording that day. Oh, However, okay. it is generally agreed that he produced a piece of paper that he claimed contained a list of known communists working for the State Department. Um, there's a little bit back and forth whether he said 205 or 57 what? or later 81. Those Not that they sound alike no, or those, anything those don't rhyme at all yep but you know kind of conflicting information mm -hmm. um and due to the sensational nature of mccarthy's charge against the state department the wheeling speech soon attracted a flood of press interest in yeah, mccarthy's claim no kidding now no offense to our friends in wild and wonderful west virginia but i am unclear on why he would deliver this bombshell speech at a women's club in wheeling yeah but in response to McCarthy's charges, the Senate voted unanimously to investigate and a subcommittee was formed. The full name was the Subcommittee on the Investigation of Loyalty of State Department Employees. <laughs> like very, very creative. Yeah. Uh, but the chairman, his name was um, Senator Millard Tidings. He was from Maryland. Um, so it's generally called the Tidings Committee. Okay. They were tasked in February 1950 to conduct a full and complete study and investigation as to whether persons who are disloyal to the U.S. are or have been employed by the Department of State. Okay. Many Democrats were furious at McCarthy's attack on the State Department of a Democratic administration, and they had hoped to use the hearings to discredit him. Uh, the Democratic chairman of the subcommittee, Senator Tidings, was reported to have said, let me have him for three days in public hearings and he'll never show his face in the Senate again. <laughs> Great. Famous last uh, words. Yeah. 
Uh, but from its beginning, the Tidings Committee was marked by partisan infighting. Mm. And its final report, written by the Democratic majority, concluded that the individuals on McCarthy's list were neither communist nor pro-communist and said that the State Department had an effective security program. The Tidings report labeled McCarthy's charges as a fraud and a hoax and said that the result of McCarthy's actions was to confuse and divide the American people to a degree far beyond the hopes of the communists themselves. Does this sound a little bit like fake news? To yeah. You? That's, okay. Um, hmm, this right. is all very familiar to me. Uh, from 1950 onward, McCarthy continued to exploit the fear of communism and to press his accusations that the government was failing to deal with communism within its ranks. Uh, McCarthy also began investigations into the numerous homosexuals working in the foreign policy bureaucracy who were considered prime candidates for blackmail by the Soviets. Oh, These accusations received wide publicity, increased his approval rating, and gained him a powerful national following. McCarthy also alleged that numerous communists and Soviet spies and sympathizers had infiltrated American universities, labor unions, and the film industry. Barely a month after his wheeling speech, the term McCarthyism was coined by the Washington Post cartoonist Herbert Block. Uh, Block and others used the word as a synonym for demagoguery, baseless defamation, and mudslinging. Yeah, still. Yeah, still, still use it. Yeah, up. still yeah. to this day. Mm-hmm. Uh, so later, the term would actually be embraced by McCarthy and some of his supporters. Um, <laughs> he said in a 1952 speech, "McCarthyism is Americanism with its sleeves rolled." Oh my Un- God! <laughs> this guy is the yep. Worst. He's a little soul of himself. Um, later that same year, he published a book titled "McCarthyism: Colon The Fight for America." Oh jeez! McCarthy discredited his critics and political opponents by accusing them of being communists or communist sympathizers. The thing was, during the course of his investigations, safeguards promised by the Constitution, again, listen to episode 48 is our constitutional amendments episode. Man, Check that out. You are just so, plugging away. Yeah. So anyway, <laughs> the thing was that like the safeguards that were promised by the cons- the Constitution were essentially trampled during the courses of sure. those things. Yeah, absolutely. Great. So suspicions of communist activity were often given credence despite inconclusive or questionable evidence. And the level of threat posed by a person's real or supposed leftist associations or beliefs was sometimes exaggerated. Mm. Many people suffered loss of employment or destruction of their careers. Some even suffered imprisonment. Most of these punishments came about through trial verdicts later overturned, laws that were later declared unconstitutional, dismissals for reasons later declared illegal or actionable, and extra legal procedures that would come into general dispute. So, the House on American Activities Committee. Okay. You've heard of this. Yes. Yes. Uh, abbreviated the HUAC, the House on American Activities Committee. It was created in 1938 to investigate alleged disloyalty and subversive activities on the part of private citizens, public employees, and those organizations suspected of having fascist and communist ties. Yes. In late September 1947, the House on American Activities Committee subpoenaed 79 individuals on a claim that they were subversive and the supposition that they injected communist propaganda into their films. Oh, Although sh- never substantiating this claim, the investigators charged them with contempt of Congress when they refused to answer the questions about their members in the Screenwriters Guild and Communist Party. The committee demanded that they admit their political beliefs and name names of other communists. <laughs> Ten of them were cited for contempt of Congress and blacklisted after refusing to answer questions about their alleged involvement in the Communist Party. It's and these, this first group was called the Hollywood Ten. Um, mm. The one you're probably most familiar with is Dalton Trumbo. Oh, he's yep. kind of in, yeah. He's, mm-hmm. His name has get, gotten bandied about. And he was in a, you know, the, the subject of a movie a couple years ago called yes. Trumbo. Um, the HUAC is best known for the investigation of Alger Hiss and for its investigation of the Hollywood film industry, which led to the blacklisting of hundreds of actors, writers, and directors. Mm-hmm. 
the Hollywood blacklist, as it's known, was the practice of denying employment to screenwriters, actors, directors, musicians, and American entertainment professionals during the mid-20th century because they were accused of having communist ties or sympathies. Those who repented and named names of suspected communists were allowed to return to the business as usual. Hmm. But those who refused to address the committee were cited for contempt. Artists were barred from work on the basis of their membership, alleged membership in, or sympathy within the Communist Party USA, or their refusal to assist investigations into the party's activities. Even during the period of its strictest enforcement from the late 1940s through to the late 1950s, the blacklist was rarely made explicit or verifiable, but it directly damaged the careers of scores of individuals working in the film industry. Um, More than 300 actors, authors, and directors were denied work in the U.S. through the unofficial Hollywood blacklist. That's crazy. So Mm -hmm. it was just self-perpetuating. So they would call these people to the carpet and Mm -hmm. be like, you can go back to work if you just name some names. And I'm sure a lot of people were like, all right, well, give me like, I don't know, like five names of people (laughs) that I know or don't like. (laughs) Yeah. Like you can, you know, kick this guy to the curb or whatever. Uh Uh-huh. And so they got to go back to work, but then they got five more people to call the carpet. And if they refuse, then they're like, all right, you're out. That's crazy. Exactly. So... Like, while there were communists in America, um, many of the people who were accused of these had actually, like, attended party rallies for communists, like, 15 to 20 years earlier um, because it was, like, fashionable to do that. Sure. It was also fashionable to, like, unwrap mummies in your house. Yeah. And, and, like, like, grind them up and snort them into powder. Yeah. Like, what? (laughs) Like, fashionable is a, a relative term, you know? Yeah. Ugh. Um, in June 1950, the right-wing journal Counterattack released Red Channels, the report of communist influence in radio and television. So this pamphlet-style book names 151 actors, writers, musicians, etc., in the context of purported communist manipulation of the entertainment industry. And some of these 151 were already being denied employment because of their political beliefs. Um, notable names who ended up on the blacklist include... Lillian Hellman, Leonard Bernstein, Aaron oh. Copeland, Richard oh Attenborough, <gasps> Dashiell Hammett, Burl Ives, Lena Horne, Langston Hughes, what? Dorothy Parker, Arthur Miller, Dolores Del Rio, Ossie Davis, Ruby D, and hundreds of others. Oh my God, Ossie Davis and Ruby D. Yeah. Oh, so many. So well, they're still famous. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like they they survived. And then like later, they oh, yeah. you know names were cleared or whatever. But like during the height of their careers, people were not being hired because. Because of this they were guy. suspected to be communist. So, Senator Margaret Chase Smith, who was the first woman to serve in both houses of Congress, delivered her powerful Declaration of Conscience speech on June 1st, 1950, four months after McCarthy's Wheeling speech. In it, she criticized national leadership and called for the country, the U.S. Senate, and the Republican Party to reexamine the tactics used by the HUAC and, without naming him, Senator McCarthy. Smith was a Republican senator from Maine. Um, one line from the speech that I freaking love was Smith said she didn't want to see her party, quote, ride to political victory on the four horsemen of calumny, fear, ignorance, bigotry, and smear. Oh, my God. I just got chills. <laughs> A horse named smear. Fear, ignorance, bigotry, and smear. That was good. Good for her. Uh, the writer Bernard Brooks stated that if a man had given this speech, he would be the next president. Uh, however, McCarthy called Smith and the senators who co-sponsored her declaration Snow White and the Six Dwarves, <gasps> a gendered insult to his colleagues' power and self-determination that was typical of the way in which he spoke. I hate this guy. He can't even come up with a good burn. <laughs> like, that's just lame. <laughs> He's so lame. Uh, by the way, in episode 52, I give you a quiz on famous speeches you should know. Add this to the list in your head. I did very poorly on that quiz, by the way. So, 
But you would get them now. I would maybe. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> Roll the dice. So McCarthy and President Truman often clash while they were in office at the same time. Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, McCarthy characterized Truman and the Democratic Party as soft on or even in league with communists and spoke of the Democrats 20 years of treason. All right. Like, don't mess with my man, Harry Truman. Yeah. Okay. You love your boy. My boy. Uh, Truman, in turn, once referred to McCarthy as, quote, the best asset the Kremlin has, calling <laughs> McCarthy's actions an attempt to sabotage the foreign policy of the yeah. U.S. in a Cold War and comparing it to shooting American soldiers in the back. Wow. Um, remember, it was the Truman administration State Department that McCarthy accused of harboring 205 or 57 or 81 yeah. known communists. Um, Truman's Secretary of Defense, George C. Marshall, was the target of some of McCarthy's vitriolic rhetoric. Um, Marshall was a highly respected five-star general. Yeah. And statesman, remember, today is the architect of the Marshall Plan for yeah. post-war reconstruction of Europe, for which you probably remember he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 1953. Check out episode 36, Generally Speaking, for more information. <laughs> Oh, my God. Uh, McCarthy made a lengthy speech on Marshall, later published in 1951 as a book titled America's Retreat from Victory, colon, the story of George Catlin Marshall. In it, McCarthy charged that Marshall was directly responsible for the loss of China to communism, and he also implied that Marshall was guilty of treason. Again, don't what? F with my five-star general. Yeah, okay? He's a five-star general who won the Nobel Peace yeah. Prize. Yes. And all you but did. But apparently because, you know, apparently because of their actions, that's why China is communist. Sure, 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 sure. All right. Yeah. All right. Okay. All right. Cool, 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 cool. So during the 1952 presidential election, the Eisenhower campaign toured Wisconsin with McCarthy. In a speech delivered in Green Bay, Republican Dwight D. Eisenhower, another five-star general. Another five-star general, five yes. Five-star general, declared that while he agreed with McCarthy's goals, he disagreed with his methods. This seems like a very sane thing sure yeah right great um in draft versions of his speech eisenhower also included a strong defense of his mentor george c marshall who was a which was a direct rebuke of mccarthy's frequent attacks good um, but under the advice of conservative colleagues who were fearful that eisenhower could lose wisconsin if he alienated mccarthy's supporters he deleted this defense from later versions of his speech um, with his victory in the 1952 presidential race dwight eisenhower became the first republican president in 20 years the republican party also held a majority in the house of representatives and the senate um, after being elected president, Eisenhower made it clear to those close to him that he did not approve of McCarthy and he worked actively to diminish his power and influence. But still, he never directly confronted him or criticized him by name in any speech, thus perhaps prolonging McCarthy's power by giving the impression that even the president was afraid to criticize him directly. Uh, yeah, you're a five star general. <sighs> Maybe pick up the phone. You know what I mean? Pick up the phone. Ike. Ike. <laughs> With the beginning of his second term as senator in 1953, McCarthy was made chairman of the Senate Committee on Government Operations. Oh, According to some reports, though, Republican leaders were growing wary of his methods and gave him this relatively mundane panel rather than the Internal Security Subcommittee, the committee normally involved with investigating communists, oh, essentially okay. trying to shove McCarthy into a corner where he couldn't do them much harm. Mm. Uh, McCarthy, though, never wanted no one to sit down and shut up, no. uh, began an inquiry into the U.S. Army in 1953, no. claiming that they had lax security at a top secret army facility and that they promoted people within the army without merit. Like, like what? Joe, like he just relax. Yeah, he's either really paranoid or like the biggest bullshitter who ever walked the planet. I mean, well, I would hate to see what mccarthy's twitter would have been like oh god his twitter would be so bad okay Ugh. here we are 
1954. Okay. Big year for all you McCarthy heads out there. All right. <laughs> so the television documentary series See It Now, hosted by journalist Edward R. Murrow, mm. aired an episode called A Report on Senator Joseph R. McCarthy on March 9th, 1954, where they basically showed clips of McCarthy speaking slash yelling at people. Oh, sure. Uh, Murrow had some great biting words for McCarthy. Quote, this is no time for men who oppose Senator McCarthy's methods to keep silent or for those who approve. We can deny our heritage and our history, but we cannot escape responsibility for the result. All right. Okay. All right. All right. A week later, they aired another episode criticizing McCarthy and focusing on the case of an African-American army clerk who was the target of one of McCarthy's investigations. Mm. The Murrow shows started a nationwide backlash against McCarthy in part because for the first time, his statements were being publicly challenged by noteworthy figures. Oh, yeah. Um, And to counter the negative publicity, McCarthy appeared on See It Now in April 1954 and made a number of charges against the popular Murrow, including an accusation that he colluded with VOKS, a Russian espionage and propaganda organization. This response did not go over well with viewers, and the result no. was, a, was a beginning of the decline in McCarthy's popularity. Okay. Remember how McCarthy went after the army like a year ago? Yeah. Okay. Army fought back. Sure. They're they, the army. Yeah. <laughs> they were like, all right, we That's got enough, enough of you, Joe. They accused McCarthy and his chief counsel named Roy Cohn of improperly pressuring the army to give special privileges to a former McCarthy aide named G. David Shine, who had been drafted into the army the year prior. Mm. So here we get the Army McCarthy hearings that convened in April 1954. So many hearings. They lasted for 36 days. They were broadcast on live television by ABC with an estimated 20 million viewers. Wow. My dad said, we had to endure for four o'clock television shows being preempted by blathering senators talking nonsense we kids (laughs) couldn't fathom. That's funny. Um, After hearing 32 witnesses and 2 million words of testimony, the committee concluded that though McCarthy himself had not exercised any improper influence on Shine's behalf, his counselor, Roy Cohn, had engaged in unduly persistent or aggressive efforts. So McCarthy began to see the negative effects that the extensive exposure had on his popularity. Oh, wow. Out of this, we get another speech you should know. All right. I have so many speeches. It's. It's generally called the have you no sense of decency speech. Ooh, All right. Okay. I like so, that. Joseph N. Welch, a smart, soft-spoken lawyer, represented the army during the army McCarthy hearings. Sure. Um, during the course of weeks of hearings, Welch diminished every one of McCarthy's charges. The senator, in turn, became increasingly enraged, bellowing, point of order, point of order, screaming at witnesses and declaring that one highly decorated general was a disgrace to his uniform. What? So... He's not having this. On June 9th, 1954, McCarthy again became agitated at Welch's steady destruction of each of his arguments and witnesses. In response, McCarthy charged that Frederick G. Fisher, a young associate in Welch's law firm, had been a longtime member of an organization linked to the Communist Party. Welch was stunned. As he struggled to maintain his composure, he looked at McCarthy and he declared, Until this moment, Senator, I think I never really gauged your cruelty or your (gasps) recklessness. As McCarthy was stunned into silence, Welsh asked, Have you no sense of decency, sir, at long last? The audience of citizens, a newspaper and television reporters burst into wild applause. Oh, my God. They were just like, it was just like, he freaking had it. Cut him down. Yes. Get it, Welch. Yeah. So um, McCarthy's 1954 hearings are often incorrectly conflated with the hearings of the House Committee on Un-American Activities. So don't let that confuse you. Um, Many in the audience saw him as bullying, reckless and dishonest. Sure. The daily newspaper summaries of the hearings were pretty unfavorable. An increasing number of Republicans and conservatives were finally coming to see McCarthy as a liability to the party and to anti-communism. McCarthyism essentially became the synonym for witch hunting. Mm, Okay. mm -hmm. So McCarthy's downfall. 
Here we are. A special committee chaired by Senator Arthur Watkins was appointed to evaluate a resolution to have McCarthy removed from Senate committees and also censured. Mm -hmm. The Republican senator who introduced the resolution, Senator Ralph Flanders, listed 46 charges. (laughs) Watkins' committee recommended that McCarthy be censured on two of the 46 counts for abuse and non-cooperation with the Subcommittee on Privileges and Elections during a 1952 investigation of his conduct and for the abuse of the Select Committee to Study Censure. The committee that was investigating him. (laughs) (laughs) On December 2nd, 1954, the Senate voted to condemn McCarthy on both counts, 67 to 22. The only senator not on record was John F. Kennedy. (gasps) Oh. who was hospitalized for back surgery. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, my God, that's crazy. Yeah. Um, Indiana Senator William E. Jenner, one of McCarthy's friends and fellow Republicans, likened McCarthy's conduct to that of, quote, the kid who came to the party and peed in the lemonade. Yeah, he definitely peed in the lemonade. <laughs> I mean, it's a little bit more serious than that, but yeah, he's Ugh. the worst. So, again, censure, which is a lesser you know, punishment than expulsion. Sure. It's a formal statement of disapproval. Um, it doesn't carry any tangible penalties, but it is one way to get yourself the silent treatment from yeah. your colleagues. Yeah. So after his censure, McCarthy continued senatorial duties for another two and a half years, but his career as a major public figure had been unmistakably ruined. Sure. Um, his colleagues in the Senate avoided him. His speeches on the Senate floor were delivered to near empty chambers or were received with deliberate displays of distraction and inattention. Ooh, somebody's filing their nails. Yeah. Someone put in some earbuds yeah. and started mm-hmm. listening Someone's to some Drake. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did you listen to some Drake? Listen to some Drake, yeah. <laughs> so, so the press that had once recorded his every public statement now ignored him and his outside speaking engagements had, you know, were basically down to nothing. Yeah. President Eisenhower, finally free of McCarthy's political intimidation, quipped to his cabinet that McCarthyism was now McCarthy wasm. McCarthy wasm. McCarthy wasm. Yeah. I mean,. <laughs> Not a lot of sick burns in the fifties, <laughs> we'll say. <It's> true. <laughs> not, not a lot of cutting remarks. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but you We've know, had what? time to hone our craft. Good, good effort, yep. President Eisenhower. Yep. <laughs> okay, remember that tail gunner Joe nickname? Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, as it turns out, Joe McCarthy falsely claimed participation in thirty-two aerial missions <gasps> in order to qualify for a Distinguished Flying Cross and multiple awards of the Air Medal, which the Marine Corps chain of command decided to approve in 1952 because of his political influence. Yeah, of course. McCarthy also publicized a letter of commendation, which he claimed had been signed by his commanding officer and Admiral Chester W. Nimitz, then Chief of Naval Operations. However, his commander revealed that McCarthy had written the letter himself, (gasps) probably while preparing award citations and commendation letters as an additional duty, and that he signed his commander's name, after which Nimitz signed in the process of of signing numerous other such letters and a war wound, basically Uh-oh. a badly broken leg that McCarthy made the subject of varying stories involving airplane crashes or anti-aircraft fire had in fact happened aboard a ship during a raucous celebration for sailors crossing the equator for the first Get time. Get the hell out of so here. So he basically like busted his leg, getting too drunk on board a ship because and he then called the- it his war wound. What a big fakey faker. Yeah. Yep. So it, it, it to actually sidebar. It has been a long naval tradition to initiate polywogs, who are sailors who have never crossed the equator, into the kingdom of Neptune upon their first crossing oh of the equator. God, okay. <laughs> and sidebar. <laughs> okay. So because of McCarthy's various lies about his military heroism, his tail gunner Joe nickname was sarcastically used as a term of mockery by his critics. Oh sure, on. yeah, yeah. Um, they also consider this like a like um 
an instance of stolen valor, which is oh, where sure, yeah. people who served in the military like lie about their service so that they, they get more awards. And yeah. it's it's unfair to the people who went through these experiences. Mm-hmm. It's, and it's unfair. Shameful. Yeah. Yeah. It's awful. All right. McCarthy. Always, he had always been a heavy drinker. Mm. Um, a journalist wrote that for Joe, being on the wagon meant beer instead of whiskey for days and weeks at a time. Yikes. Uh, McCarthy suffered cirrhosis of the liver and was frequently hospitalized for alcoholism. He had also become addicted to heroin. And, <gasps> you know. Okay. What? By the way, BT dubs, heroin. Um, and the head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics named Harry J. Anslinger actually paid for McCarthy's heroin right up until his death. Are you... Yeah shitting me right no. now he no. was a heroin addict he was a, heroin he, was addict. a he was a drug <laughs> addict i'm like stunned by this i mean i'm i'm stunned because like the alcohol wasn't doing it for him anymore so he had know? so he, he just went straight to heroin sure didn't smoke any weed Probably didn't drop not. any acid no didn't do any any no. of the other drugs he just chased no, the dragon just went Boom. heroin wow so McCarthy died in the Bethesda Naval Hospital on May 2nd, 1957 at age 48. What? This guy wasn't even old, okay? <laughs> oh my God. He was only 48. He did most of his damage from like age 38 to age like 45. What a son of a bitch. Yeah. Oh, couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. <laughs> Um, William Bennett, a conservative pundit and former secretary of education, wrote about McCarthy in his 2007 book, America, The Last Best Hope. He said... Quote, the cause of anti-communism, which united millions of Americans and which gained the support of Democrats, Republicans and independents, was undermined by Senator Joe McCarthy. McCarthy addressed a real problem, disloyal elements within the U.S. government. But his approach to this real problem was to cause untold grief to the community and country he claimed to love. Worst of all, McCarthy besmirched the honorable cause of anti-communism, and he discredited legitimate efforts to counter Soviet subversion of American institutions. Yeah. Wow. So like his like screaming and yelling and pointing and getting people blacklisted and accusing them of communism yeah. and yelling at generals and stuff like was basically messing with like, just actual muddied. efforts to. Yeah. He just muddied the waters mm-hmm. and went completely overboard and faked his military record and <laughs> became a heroin addict. What? You were ready for that. I was not ready for the heroin addict thing. Jeez. All right. Finally, it's worth it to note that by the mid-1950s, membership of the Communist Party in America had slipped from its 1944 peak of around 80,000 members to an active base of approximately 5,000 members. Wow. And about 1,500 of these members were FBI informants. So to the extent that the Communist Party did survive, it was crippled by the penetration activities of these informants who kept close surveillance on the few remaining legitimate members of the party on behalf of FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover. And the party basically dried up as a base for Soviet espionage so it wasn't even a problem to begin with right oh my gosh hoover told a state department official in 1963 if it were not for me there would not be a communist party of the united states (laughs) because i financed the communist party in order to know what they're doing wow so (laughs) what a waste like what a waste of time and money and effort on everybody's part when they could have been doing so like the the high high level people like had this counterintelligence already in the Venona project but they couldn't tell anybody about it well no of course they're not gonna be like mccarthy cut it out and then the communist party had all of these people planted in it who were informants or working for the fbi and they couldn't tell anyone about it so it was like all this stuff was happening and like the people who like had this real information couldn't do anything about it so they had to let joe like keep just running his Mm -hmm. mouth his dumb heroin addicted Mm -hmm. mouth 
God. So it was really all for nothing. So that was Joe McCarthy and the second Red Scare. That was great. Thank you so much. I don't think I knew a a lot about that. I knew about the Hollywood blacklist. Uh And I knew he was, um, he had the hearings. Yeah. But yeah, I didn't know. Well, certainly the heroin addict thing was a real (laughs) twist. Really took you for a loop. Yeah. All right. My quiz is called Communism is Just a Red Herring. This is a quiz on fish and that famous plot device. I am issuing no spoiler alerts here because all of those questions will address surprises from before the year 2000. Great. All right. Great. If you haven't seen it by now, you're not going to see it. I mean, it's, I mean, if anybody, it's going to be me who gets spoiled because okay. I haven't seen anything. Great. So <laughs> expect me to be horrified. Question one. Talk about finding yourself. It turns out that the striped orange fish from Finding Nemo can change between male and female when needed during their lifetime. What kind of fish is this? Question two. In Agatha Christie's best-selling murder mystery, and then there were none, each of the ten members of the group is murdered in a way eerily similar to a line in the Ten Little Indians rhyme hanging in each guest's room. While the final two guests accuse one another of being the murderer and eventually do die in a murder-suicide, it turns out that one of the earlier victims had actually faked his own death and murdered everyone else, crafting what he called an unsolvable puzzle of murder. What was the profession of this criminal mastermind who revealed all in a postscript? Question three. A novel by Paul Torday formed the basis of what 2011 British rom-com drama starring Ewan McGregor and Emily Blunt about a fishery expert hired to help bring the sport of fly fishing to a desert country in the Middle East. Question four. In one of the most notorious cliffhanger season finales of a television show, actor Larry Hagman's character was struck by a bullet but fans had to wait eight whole months to find out who attempted to kill him. As a safeguard to prevent a leak of the actual perpetrator to the press, the show filmed a reel of various cast and crew members taking turns shooting Hagman. On what show did this big, messy drama take place? Question five. This is why fish fries are so popular in the spring months. The long-standing practice of Catholics forgoing the consumption of meat on Ash Wednesday, Good Friday, and all the Fridays in Lent is called what? Question six. While on The Lamb and the Fugitive, Dr. Richard Kimball is shown on screen to get a ride with a woman in a scene right before the U.S. Marshals declare, they've got him shacked up with some babe. When the Marshals arrive at the described location, it turns out that they have captured not Dr. Kimball, but instead another convict named Copeland who escaped death row during the same incident. What type of accident occurred that caused them both to become fugitives? Question seven. First released in 1998, Big Mouth Billy Bass was an animatronic singing prop that you've probably seen up on the wall of your uncle's man cave. Name one of the two songs that the original Big Mouth Billy Bass sang from his mounted trophy plaque. Question eight. Whoa, the butler didn't do it. One of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's mystery novels serves up a pack of the most notorious red herrings in literary history. In which story that draws your attention to the butler and an escaped convict, does Sherlock Holmes investigate a diabolical canine of supernatural origin? Question 9. Marketed in its home country as Pastel Fisker, what do we Americans call the red candy that is presumed to be lingonberry flavored and really unsuitable as a filling for a limited edition Oreo cookie? And finally, question 10. True or false? The term red herring, as we use it today, comes from a 19th century anecdote about training hunting dogs. I'll give you about a minute to think, and then I'll be back with your answers. Oh, 
that could be a dream If I could take you up in paradise up above If you would tell me I'm the only one that you love Life could be a dream, sweetheart Hello, hello again Shaboom, and hoping we'll meet again Oh, life could be a dream If only all my precious plans would come true If you would let me spend my whole life loving you Life could be a dream, sweetheart Now every time I look at you Something is on my mind If you do what I want you to Baby, we'd be so fine Oh, life could be a dream If I could take you up in paradise up above If you would tell me I'm the only one that you love Life could be a dream, sweetheart First of all, spoiler alert, because I haven't seen any of those. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I've only not seen one, I think. Have you seen The Fugitive? No, I've never seen The Fugitive. All right. I know. Well, I know. Well, Steve and I spent all of Thursday watch, sitting on the couch and watching movies and eating popcorn and pizza, which was the best. It's like, the it's a dream. I'm just so jealous. I know. It's great. And I we looked at each other. We were like, we're doing a great job at this. <laughs> like, this is the we're really doing a good job and he was like we should do this all the time I was like yeah we should really set aside like a day per month to just do this <laughs> we had pizza delivered we didn't even get out of our pajamas oh so good so we watched a bunch of movies so i'm caught up on some things but not all blade yes the blade <laughs> series just the first two pan's labyrinth the cell and then uh we watched a little prime suspect because i wanted steve to mm. watch prime suspect That's with Har- helen mirren great helen mirren yeah anyway Please Are you begin. ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Are I'm you ready. ready. Let's do this. Question one. Talk about finding yourself. It turns out this the striped orange fish from Finding Nemo can change between male and female when needed during their lifetime. What kind of fish is this? That is the hermaphroditic clownfish. It is the clownfish. They're also called anemone fish. Oh, cute. Which is interesting. Um, in a group of clownfish, a strict dominance hierarchy exists. So the largest and most aggressive female is found at the top. Only two anemone fish, a male and a female, in a group reproduce through external fertilization. Um, anemone fish are sequential hermaphrodites, meaning they develop into males first, and when they mature, they become females. Which is the way to go. If the female is removed from the group, such as by death, one of the largest and more dominant males becomes a female, oh, and the it. remaining males move up rank in the hierarchy that's amazing Whew. they're called anemone fish because they live in anemones oh yeah yeah like they, yeah. they like swim between them because they're like immune to their stingers yeah great cute <laughs> <laughs> question two in agatha christie's best-selling murder mystery and then there were none each of the 10 members of the group is murdered in a way eerily similar to a line in the 10 little indians rhyme hanging in each guest's room what was the profession of the criminal mastermind who revealed all in a postscript um was he a writer like a playwright it's been a very long time since i've read it what is it he's a judge he was a judge oh i wasn't gonna get that so justice lawrence john wargrave a retired judge known as a hanging judge for liberally awarding the death penalty in murder cases admits in his postscript that he has a lifelong hidden sadistic urge to kill but only the guilty finding himself terminally ill he devises and carries out his plot he tricked the doctor among the group into helping him fake his own death, a pretend gunshot wound to the head, sure. under the pretext that it would help the group identify the killer. He reveals how he used the gun and some elastic to ensure his own death matched the account in the guest's 
diaries. So like if they wrote down like, oh yeah, today we found out the judge was dead. Yeah. Like, that it would match the diaries. Um, and while the judge wished to create an unsolvable mystery, he acknowledges in the missive that he had a pitiful human need for recognition, hence the confession. It's so good. Oh, when it's I first, one of my favorite books. When I first read it, I mm-hmm. was stunned yeah. at the end. Stunned. Yeah. And I that is probably my first memory of being like, completely blown away mm-hmm. by the ending yeah mm-hmm. of a book and the book is like 80 years old now guys so oh, yeah it's so else. good uh question three a novel by paul torday formed the basis for what 2011 british rom-com drama starring ewan mcgregor and emily blunt about a fishery expert hired to help bring the sport of fly fishing to a desert country in the middle east oh that book and movie that's called salmon fishing in the yemen did you read it no i did okay, not but either. i did shelve it when i worked at a little bookstore called schmarns and, and bubble yes um, Ewan McGregor plays a fishery expert, you know, okay. who receives an email from a financial advisor, Emily Blunt, seeking advice on a project to bring salmon fishing to the Yemen, a project being bankrolled by a wealthy Yemeni sheik and supported by the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. Um, he dismisses the project as fundamentally infeasible because Yemen cannot provide the necessary environment for nope. salmon. Uh, but the British Prime Minister's press secretary suggests that the salmon fishing story would be a positive story to help improve relations between Britain and the Islamic world so they proceed so apparently like i guess it's kind of successful in the end or whatever it sounds like such a boring book yeah i don't know why boring i don't know why but they made it a movie i guess so (laughs) (laughs) question four in one of the most notorious cliffhanger season finales of a television show actor larry hagman's character was struck by a bullet but fans had to wait eight whole months to find out who attempted to kill him on what show did this big messy drama take place so I do know it was uh, all the press and everything. It was like, uh-huh. who shot JR? Uh huh. Right? Uh huh. So I'm pretty sure, uh-huh. because JR wore a big 10 gallon hat, that that TV show was Dallas. It was Dallas. Yes. Um, Hagman played JR Ewing, who was shot by, spoil, no, I'm not even going to no, say No, don't do it. Right. Don't it's say that. 45 years old at this point. It was shot by his sister in law, Kristen, played <gasps> by Mary Crosby, the daughter of Bing Crosby. Oh, Those hey. eight months caused such a frenzy that bookies took bets on who did the deed. And yeah. even Queen Elizabeth asked Larry Hagman who shot him. We, he said, We were presented to the Queen Mother, and she says, I don't suppose you could tell me who shot JR. <laughs> and I said, No, ma'am, not even you. <laughs> of course, the Queen Mom, she loved it. I don't suppose you could tell me. <laughs> You know, she was like, if anybody can get out of it, it's Oh, me. yeah. Look at how cute I am. Oh. Look at my rosy red cheeks. Look at how loved I am by my people. R.I.P. Queen Mom. <laughs> She's really dead. We She's know that. Re- no, she is actually dead. <laughs> yes. yes. Uh, question five. This is why fish fries are so popular in the spring months. The longstanding practice of Catholics forgoing the consumption of meat on Ash Wednesday, Good Friday, and the other Fridays in Lent is called what? Does it start with a T? No. Okay, then I don't know what it is. Abstinence abstinence mm-hmm. oh, okay i yep. was not gonna in know the catholic that. world it's not just sex it's it's also meat, meat. um so oh. for catholics fasting is the reduction of one's intake of food and abstinence refers to the refra- refraining from meat or another type of food mm-hmm. while the rules of abstinence generally only allow seafood there are a few exceptions in parts of south america especially in venezuela capybara meat is popular during oh, lent no. and holy week and in response to a question posed by French settlers in Quebec in the 17th century, beaver was classified as an exception. Oh, so gamey. And the Archbishop of New Orleans said that alligator is considered to be in the fish family in 2010. <laughs> so, oh, okay. Yeah. Good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Question six. While on the lam in The Fugitive, Dr. Richard Kimball is shown on screen to get a ride with a woman in a scene right before the U.S. Marshals declare, they've got him, shacked up with some babe. Uh, what type of accident occurred that caused him and Copeland to both become fugitives? I didn't see the movie. So okay. I'm going to go with, I don't know, like truck accident. Like they're they're driving along in a truck and like some car hits them and then they like, the whole thing goes bing and opens up and then they're like, we're free. And then they ran away. Is that what happened? It's pretty good. So it was a bus into an oncoming train accident. <laughs> oh, into an oncoming train. Okay. I can't so, take that one. Kimball was being transported to death row by bus and an attempted escape by other prisoners on the bus sent the bus down a ravine into the path of an mm. oncoming train. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like he jumps from the train. That's like an iconic thing is like he's on top and he like has to jump from the train. Oh, okay. okay. All right. Um, by the way, Harrison Ford was not originally cast for the role of Dr. Kimball and said a number of other actors auditioned for the part, including Alec Baldwin, Nick mm. Nolte, Kevin Costner, and our man, Michael Douglas. Oh, yeah. All of those guys would, would have been would great have been in that. Great. Yeah. yeah. Questions have. First released in 1998, Big Mouth Billy Bass was an animatronic singing prop that you've probably seen up on the wall of your uncle's man cave. Name one of the two songs that the original Big Mouth Billy Bass sang from his mounted trophy plaque. Uh, I'm going to say that one of them was Proud Mary. Oh, that would be good, wouldn't it? Yeah. It's not one of the two originals. Okay. Mm. Um, they were Don't Worry, Be Happy by Bobby McFerrin. God, I hate that song. Or okay. Take Me to the River by Al Green. Oh, see, that's what I was thinking and of. And Al Green said he received more royalties from it than any other recording of his song. Wow. Uh, the novelty singing fish has also shown up on talk shows, cameo on The Sopranos for a few episodes. Oh, my God. And owned and used by Queen Elizabeth II. Get you know what? Can I tell you something about the about She's a little playful. The, she's playful and she's got a little bit of she slums it sometimes. You know what I mean? Like she likes that lowbrow. She she also might like easy cheese from a can yeah, too. We absolutely. don't know. Absolutely. Oh ma'am. Yeah. Question eight. Whoa, the butler didn't do it. One of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's mystery novels serves up a pack of the most notorious red herrings in literary history. In which story that draws your attention to the butler and an escaped convict does Sherlock Holmes investigate a diabolical canine of supernatural origin? That is the Hound of the Baskervilles. It is the Hound of the Baskervilles. Um, in it, Sir Charles Baskerville is found dead on the grounds of his Devonshire estate with an expression of horror on his face. Yeah. And his friend, Dr. Mortimer, noticed the footprints of a gigantic hound about 50 yards from where Sir Charles lay dead. The Baskerville family had supposedly been under a curse since the era of the English Civil War when ancestor Hugo Baskerville allegedly offered his soul to the devil sure. for help in abducting a woman and was reportedly sure. killed by a giant spectral hound. Mm-hmm. Sir Charles believed in the curse and was apparently fleeing from something in fright when he died. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a good one. It's a good novel. It's one of the novels. There was no, there's no big giant demon supernatural hound. No, but there was a big dog. Yeah. So it's not like a ghost dog. No, it certainly wasn't a ghost dog. No, no, no. Spoiler alert. Not a ghost dog. (laughs) Question. (laughs) Marketed in his home country as pastel fisker. What do we Americans call the red candy that is presumed to be lingonberry flavored and really unsuitable as a filling for a limited edition Oreo cookie? Uh, those are Swedish fish. Swedish fish. They are fish-shaped, chewy candy, originally developed by Swedish candy producer Malico in the late 1950s for the U.S. market. But don't worry, they're fat-free. Oh, good. You know what? Um, side note, when I was working with models in New York City, when we would go down there for uh-huh. uh, fashion shows with Syracuse University, um, we were one of the few people who hired models that would actually feed them uh-huh. and nice. but they would have to wear makeup like they mm-hmm. would do like a full like cake face like full beat makeup and they we would give them like candy 
like little candy that they could eat that they could just kind of like shove in their mouth that was small enough so it wouldn't like mess up their lipstick. Yeah. And one of the things was Swedish fish. <laughs> so they would just like push it into their mouth. <laughs> and I, so I have sad. a distinct memory. Jeff and I tease, like laugh about it all the time. Like some of these girls, they didn't, they never ate any of it. Yeah. Like we ate all of it. Mm-hmm. But I remember one girl, she was like, they, I was like, okay, girls, we're lining up. We're going out. And one girl like walked past the Swedish fish and stopped and picked one up. And she goes, I'm going to save this for later and like tucked it into her bra. A single, yeah, a, a single, single picked Swedish, up a Swedish fish. fish was like, I'm going to save this for later. <laughs> like, okay. Get out there. Oh. You crazy. One Swedish, <laughs> one Swedish fish. I mean, my treat. Glorified clothes hangers. Mm. Anyway. <laughs> Finally, question 10. True or false? The term red herring, as we use it today, comes from a 19th century anecdote about training hunting dogs. I'm going to say false. It's true. Oh, fuck. You know what? I thought it was true (laughs) up until that moment. And then I was like, she's throwing me off. Okay. It was popularized in 1807 by English journalist William Cobbett, who told a story of having used a kipper to divert hounds from chasing a hare. This led to the use of red herring to mean a distraction from the important issue. By the way, there is no species of fish known as a red herring. (gasps) The term refers to a kipper, which is a whole herring split from head to tail, gutted, salted, and pickled, and cold smoked that is taken on a pungent smell and red color during preparation. That's disgusting. You can also hear more about gross food in one of our episodes on Open Up Your Mystery Baskets. You know what? Here's the thing. (laughs) I could not help but notice that every single one of the episodes that you plug are all your episodes and not my episodes. I'm just saying, Julia. I noticed that now. <laughs> oh, oh. But that's probably because I remember mine the best. That's true. I remember mine the best, too. <laughs> all right. Great. All right. We're, we're back. <laughs> well, that's all of it. That was great. That was a good quiz and an excellent topic. Thank, thank you, you, Julia. Thank you for listening. Of course. Um, and thank you guys for all of your kind messages and tweets and all this stuff. And we got a lovely donation from oh our gosh. newest Gold Star listener, Albert T. Thank you, Albert. Who sent us just like the nicest message. It totally made my day. Um, I liked it at um, when he said, there's a real level of humanity when you hear someone learning the same thing simultaneously as you and you share the same reaction of shock, awe, disgust as a total stranger. And it's hilarious. It it's just so, so nice. nice. And so, yeah. He also called us the least annoying <laughs> podcast that he listens to. Which I'll take it. That is a high compliment. Because, you know, people have their voices. Sometimes certain types mm-hmm. of voices annoy people and other types of voices annoy people in the way that people say things. And it's all subjective. Yeah. It's, you know, it's personal preference. So, Albert, thank you. Thank you. For saying such lovely such things nice about us. To and us. Thank you so much for your lovely donation. Thank you. Gold star listener. Gold star listener, Albert T. Um, <laughs> and if you want to get a hold of us... Uh, you can email us at missinfopod at gmail.com. Uh, you can tweet at us at missinfopod. Uh, and you can also find us on our Facebook page. We are misinformation colon a trivia podcast. You can also reach us uh, at our website where you can see Albert as the latest gold star <laughs> listener at triple dub dot missinfopod.com. 
Um, what else? What else? What else? Uh, you can uh, you could tell your friends about us. Yeah, tell and they can find us on iTunes slash Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and whatever podcast app you prefer with our RSS feed. Please rate, review, and subscribe. Please rate, review, and subscribe. And if you have any interest in making a donation, uh, we have a tip jar, a little um. We have a little um, PayPal little account, little, little PayPal button. button, both on our website, www.missinfopod.com, and also on our Twitter page. And if you would like to toss a, us a couple of bucks, we would appreciate with, it. We would appreciate it. It would help us with um, overhead costs and um, hosting fees and all Albert sorts of other things. Albert said we could use his for wine. So Did he? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> that's a nice bottle of wine, too. All right, all right, all right, all right. So, awesome. Um, Thanks so much for listening, guys. Yeah, we'll get you next time. Bye. Bye.